Welcome back for another week. We'll learn Perek Yud Gimel. Our learning is dedicated to Ilya Nishmat Rivka Bad Yaakov Alevi, Lucy Mayan Rina D. Our full year sponsor, Naomi Nitzi Hallander, complete refua for all Cholim and specifically for their daughter in law, Meira Shoshana Bat Rivka. Michelle and Gary Friedman, in memory of Hanamalko Bat David, and Rufu Shlema for Rachel Meryl Hinda Bat Miriam Rivka. Our half year sponsor, Rufu Shlema for Minuchatova Bat Shoshana Chava Devora. Our Spotify sponsor, Fushlema for all those injured in Eretz Yisrael, safe return of all of our hostages, and a safe, safety for all our chayalim. Fushlema for Yitidi Chaimed of Yerifka Chaya, Brachavigal Barachal Gita, Tilabatya Bachayatov, Shimon bin Elka, and Shaduchim for all those in need. Everything sounded pretty good as we uh, we saw Shaul until this point. He's winning wars, the people are uniting around him. Everything seems to be going just well. And the wheels begin to fall off the bus in our Perak and Perak Yud Gimel. And we'll see the transition to Perak Yud Dalit. And then, of course, Perak Tetvav, which is the uh, war with Amalek. And we'll see how quickly Shaul is derailed. How quickly Shaul goes from being this amazing, promising king to what he turns out to be. And so we start with Pasuk Aleph, which is a very hard pasuk. It just doesn't read very well. And let's take a look at it together. Now it's not uncommon for Tanakh to introduce a king by telling us he is this old, he is king for this many years. But it starts off by telling us that Shaul is Ben Shana. He's one years old when he becomes king. And he rules for two years. Now, obviously, that puzzle can't be what it means. What do you mean he's king at one year old? At one year old, nobody's king at one year old. That, that doesn't make any sense. Now, and, and if you're going to tell me, because there are kings that take over at young ages, they generally have a long reign, and everything that they really do, not that's done through. The their advisors who are essentially running the kingdom until they're old enough to be the king, they they do their things later on in life. But he's only king for two years, doesn't make any sense. So the Ral Bag is bothered by this. And he says, He says, this is a very hard pasuk to read. Very hard. For two reasons. It can't be that Shaul was king at one year old. It doesn't make sense. And anyway, we know already Shaul was looking for the donkeys. You're not sending your one year old looking for your donkeys. Number one. It's, it's very hard for us to believe that he was only king for two years. It seems very, very difficult for us to imagine that he was able to do so much, accomplish so much in his time as king when it only was two years. He's going to beat so many different armies. He's going to defeat and give prosperity to the Jewish people. David Melech, when he eulogizes Shaul, he tells everybody that Shaul gave gold jewelry to all the women. What does that mean? He didn't go out and give gold jewelry to all the women. The pshat probably is that he he elevated the financial status of Am Yisrael in Eretz Yisrael during his time. So all of that happens. It, that's incredible, but it's hard for us to imagine that all that happens in two years. That's the Ralbag's question. 
So I'll share with you an idea by Tanchum Hayrushalmi. He says the pasuk is a defective pasuk. What does that mean? It's a defective pasuk. It's a broken pasuk. It's not writ- written in a way that flows properly, much like Shmuel's speech in last week's parak. It reflects the mood. It reflects the fact that there is a defective nature to this malucha. And I think that that's particularly appropriate as we watch the Perek um, open up. So what are the possible answers? How do we understand this Pasuk? So the Radak says, So there was some time until now, from the time that he was Mechadesh the Melucha, where he re- dedicates the kingdom. That was a year. And from now onward, there's two more years. That's the Radak's first answer. The Radak acknowledges the opinion of this Baal Seder Olam. The Sefer, the Sefer Seder Olam is uh, a Sefer that will give us years and dates for different things. And there's a Mesorah that these are correct. And he says, that the Baal Seder Olam says he was king for two years. So it must be that he was king for two years. That's two. The Yesh Lomar, the Shanak, Far Shanat, the Let Bechovin, that he was king for a year. Well, he started when he was a year old. Kain Shaul, Kadmelech, the Kad Pirush, or Tenuzal. Vol Bidrash. So they want to say that he was like a king. Vol Bidrash, Kishamelech, Nimchalu Avenotav, Ad Oto Ayom. When you become a king, all of your sins are forgiven. Three different people, their sins are wiped away. And that is a chatan, a chacham, when you become the leader, the nasi. And nasi is the same thing as a um, as a king. And so Shaul was considered like a ben yomo, a one-year-old that has no sins. Rashi says the same thing. Tatmikra says perhaps that we can say that the count of his malucha stops once David is anointed as king. So even though there's going to be more time after that, the two years that we're counting only get us till David is anointed. Once David is anointed, even though Shaul has more years as king, nonetheless, his count as king is over. Okay. So that is how we understand the first Pasuk. Now, let's take a look at Pasuk Bet, because Pasuk Bet is going to help us again with the lay of the land. Shaul had 3,000 soldiers. Now remember, when he attacked the the people of Ammon in Yavesh Gilad, he had 300 or maybe 330,000 soldiers with him. So he's gone from that to 3,000. So his standing army, maybe, or all that he's left to hold on to is significantly less. So Shaul chooses 3,000 soldiers. Aim Shaul alpaim b'michmas. So he has 2,000 with him in michmas. Ubehar Beit El, and the mountain of Beit El. The Elif Hayum Yonatan begivat binyamin. And Yonatan had a thousand give up in Yamin. And the rest went home. Interestingly, okay, so interestingly, there are 2,000 with um, Shaul, 
a thousand with Yonatan, and we don't even know who Yonatan is. Now, we all might know Yonatan. Some people that are listening are like, I know Yonatan. Yonatan is the son of Shaul, but we don't know that yet. We're not going to learn that until later on. So why is it that it's written in such a strange way that it's introduced? It's not introducing him, but he's significant. So Rebbe Zach says, again, it is purposely a difficult read to reflect the problems of the kingdom. Okay, again, that's where we are. So you can see on the right side of the map is Michmas and Giv'ah and Beit El. And that's where their army of 3,000 lie. And Pleshet, the home of the Plishtim, is all the way on the left side of the map. Now, we know that the Plishtim have slowly been encroaching on the Jewish land. And they do. They they even get in the times of Eli to the all the way to Shiloh and they destroy it. But to think this is how far they've gotten. The the enemy lies by Michmas and Giv'ah. That is really deep into the land of Israel. And that's what we're going to see. And the rest of the army he sends home. That's all he's got. So what does Yonatan do? Yonatan attacks the garrison, or perhaps the palace of the Plishti governor in Giva. And the Plishtim hear this. And what happens? Shal blows the shofar in the land, and he says, listen, Ivrim. What's going on here? What is Yonatan doing? So the Ralbag is trying to help us out. And he says, So it's really bad. The garrison of the Plishtim is already in Giva. That and Geva, that's how far they've gotten. Vikal Yonatan, and Yonatan smites them. Love that word. And they wanted to take vengeance. It's time to either, let's, let's have a big conference and discuss what to do, or let's go to battle. But the time has come. And he calls the Jews. Now, interestingly, he calls them Ivrim. So we would think that Yishmu Am Yisrael, Yishmu Bnei Yisrael, Yishmu Ivrim. Avram is an Ivri. Yosef is an Ivri. Ivri is not exactly a. Um, it's not exactly a a beautiful language. It's not a. It's not a nice term to call someone. An Ivri. An Ivri is an outsider. So what exactly is going on here that we're we're calling him that? So let's take a look at a couple different possibilities. One possibility is the Dat Mikra. Dat Mikra says, Ivrim, hayu mechanim the the Plishim used it as a uh, as an obnoxious term. It was a not nice term, a derogatory term. He does this, why? Because he wants to rile the people up, right? When you hear someone say, oh, he's a dirty Jew, that bothers you. You hear someone use uh, an inappropriate word that, to, to, call, to reference a Jewish person, <coughs> it bothers a person. 
It gets their blood boiling. Shaul wants to get the Jews angry. Look, this is who they are. And this is what the Plishtim are declaring about us. Now, if you take a look at the picture, this is from Dat Mikra itself. The Plishtim look formidable. They've got weapons. They're strong. That's how they're characterized. And the Jewish people, they feel it. They really, really feel it. So what happens? So all the Jewish people hear this saying that he cast Shaul, that Shaul hit the uh, garrison of the Plishtim and that the Jews have been embarrassed by the Plishtim. They've been humiliated and the people all cry after Shaul and they come to Gilgal. Gilgal? Why are they in Gilgal? It doesn't make any sense at all. If you go back to the, let's go back to the map for just a moment. The Jewish people put themselves in Gilgal, right here, as opposed to Michmas. Now why, by giving up Michmas, Michmas is a high place. It's the mountain. If you look, you can actually see on the topography of the map that you're going downwards. Gilgal is in the plain. Whereas Michmas already, you're going up into the mountains of Judea. Why in the world would you want to be in Gilgal? And not only that, what do you have? You have the mountain on one side, and on the other side, you have the water. Now, if you look really, really closely at the bottom bottom part of the map, as you hit what I believe is the tip of the, the northern tip of the Dead Sea, what you have is you have a thin little piece there. I, I, I think when you're driving down, that's where you, you start making your descent towards the Dead Sea, right? Where we go to, to you know, vacation or what have you. But you have this mountain on one side and you have this thin road on the other side. That's not a good place to put your army when you're about to go up against a formidable opponent like the Plishtim. Why did they go there? I think the question that we have to ask ourselves is, whose plan is it? Whose idea is this whole thing? I think to understand that, we have to go back to to the initial meeting between Shaul and Shmuel. It says, They're going home. They're at the edge of the city. Send the boy away. Send your servant away. He doesn't need to be here. You stay here. Let me tell you what God has to say. He's going to tell him what God's plan is. Shaul doesn't know. Doesn't know the plan at all. God is giving him a plan. Do we know what that plan is? We do not have any idea what that plan is. And then we get to Pasakei. The Plishtim gather to battle with the Jewish people, 30,000 chariots, the Sheshet Alafim Parashim, and 6,000 chariot riders, the Amkachol Shal Satayam, and the nation is like the sand on the sea that is innumerable. You can't count them. Now we know that expression. That expression is usually used to describe the Jewish people. The Jews are so many. And yet here it's used to describe our enemy. 
And they go and they camp by Michmas, which is near Beit Aven. Okay, so we're told that they're that they're, they're this huge force. Now, just to give you a sense of the number of chariots, Egypt, last week's parsha in the uh in Kriyas Yamsuf, 600 chariots. The Haftorah, sisters' chariots, we learned this together back in Sefer Shoftim. 900 chariots. The Plishtim, 30,000. That's innumerable. Immeasurable. And they imagine these chariots. This is what they look like. You can see this. You can visit this. It's behind the glass in Latrun. These are ancient, ancient tanks. 30,000 of these. That's what the Jews are going up against. Now, again, if you were Shaul, where would you want to start the war from? Not Gilgal. Michmas. Move up. Find yourself a nice place in the mountains to, to, to plant yourself. Save yourself. Spare yourself. But alas, that's not what he does. He's in Gilgal. And the question we have to ask, ask ourselves is, what is the purpose of that? So this is a beautiful idea by Rabbi Zak. It seems that it's precisely the point that stands at the center, the center of Shaul's first test as king over all of Israel. Shaul's the first king of Israel. And this is the first war waged by Israel under the leadership of a king. Exclusively his battle. He's going to have his own battle. He had a battle with Shmuel against Ammon. But this is his first one. Therefore, it is exceedingly important that it be absolutely clear that even when God agrees to the monarchical framework, even when there is a king, he continues to stand behind the scenes. This message will be best delivered through a victory void of all military logic. The miracle upon which the victory will be built will be magnified with the selection of a place that has no strategic logic. For through this selection, the lesson will be internalized in the kingdom of Israel. The strategic consideration is not always the decisive one. For this reason, Shmuel was appointed king from the very outset of Gilgal. And there, as we already saw, Shmuel emphasized at length the importance of obeying the word of God as the sole condition for success. The preparations for the forest war against the Plishim were also made specifically at Gilgal in order to illustrate the idea that what is most important is trust and faith in God. And while the Lord was, was, was must be, con- while war must be conducted natural ways, nevertheless, the battle is the Lord's. The lesson is particularly important in the first war. And therefore, it was precisely in the war that Shaul was asked to take such unusual steps. Rav Amnon Bazak. I heard an amazing idea by Rev, Rev Ephraim Goldberg yesterday. He suggests that when we teach people, when we teach students, we need to have a curriculum of emuna. And he says that if a if we're learning Gemara, we're learning Tanakh, we don't have in it a, a nugget of emuna. It's a wasted opportunity. It's not just an intellectual pursuit. So, Belinader, I hope to try to weave a little bit of that into every shear going forward. But isn't that, isn't this the perfect lesson of Amuna? You have to ask yourself, what are you crazy? How's it possible you're, you're going to go out to war in such an illogical way? Yes, says God. Why? Because it is Dafka, it is specifically the first war with the first king, where I want to remind each and every one of you, I. I'm your king. Anochi, Hashem Elokecha. It's not going to be won by you, but it's going to be won by me. You could have the biggest army and you'll lose. You could have the smallest army going against the most unbelievable army. 30,000 chariots. Can't even imagine that. And yet, 
The Jews can win precisely for that reason. The Jewish people see that Kitzarlo, it's bad. Now it's interesting, Kitzarlo is also it's narrow. Maybe that's part of it. The they look at the uh the, at the geography, they look at the topography, Kitzarlo. It is not comfortable for us. Kinigasha'am, because the the Plishtim are coming. So the nation, the Jews, where do they hide? In caves. That is a an a practice of the Jewish people forever. You you want to hide? You hide in caves. What's amazing is that if you actually go in that area, there's Bedouin tribes that live on those mountains that are going down to the Dead Sea, and they're full of different caves and different places. It is an unbelievable place to hide. The Jews have plenty of places to hide. And in the thorns, and in the stones, in the towers, they hide everywhere. And some of the Jews, that Mikra wants to say those that were slaves of the Plishtim, will actually see later on that they're, the extent to which the Jews were subservient to the Plishtim. So Ivrim Avruta Yardain Eretz Gad Vigilad, they go and run away. Shaul Odenaba Gilgal, and Shaul is in Gilgal. And the people, they, they chase after him. Why? Because they say, oh my God, we're going to lose. Well, the closest thing we have is you, Shaul, and you already let us in success once, maybe it'll happen again. He waits seven days. He waits seven days. The amount of time he waits for Shmuel. Shmuel doesn't come to Gilgal. And the people, Mitsuda says they leave. They scatter away. They're like losing faith in him. What's going on? Shmuel waits. Um, Shmuel tells Shaul once upon a time. Back, back, back when they first met, he says, I'm giving you three signs that are going to happen. Number one, you're going to meet some people, they're going to tell you your donkeys are found. Number two, you're going to meet some guys and they're going to give you food. Number three is you're going to go to Gilgal and I want you to wait there for seven days. But that never happened. He's in Gilgal and it's now seven days. What's the purpose of waiting seven days? What's the deal with that? Sir Alex Israel suggests the following. He was never told when to go to Gilgal, but he was told the following. You're, when you feel... You need to go there. When you feel you need this place to go to that's going to bring you closer to God and bring you victory, go there. Or perhaps Shaul was told that eventually there's going to be a revolution. You're going to lead the revolution and that revolution is going to win the Jews their freedom. When you're ready for that revolution, go to Gilgal for seven days. So he does. He goes to Gilgal for seven days and he waits there. Now, it's really, really, really hard to make a person wait for seven days, especially when the enemy is so t- so close to you. The question is, can he can he manage? Can he manage to be patient enough and wait? That is going to be the question for Shaul. Now, why seven days? So one possibility is, what is the first battle that the Jewish people ever fight? It's the battle of Yericho. And how long do they wait before they attack? Seven days. They're going to circle around Yericho for seven days until they win. Perhaps the message that God is saying is this is the first battle of the first king. I want you to go back to the first battle of the Jewish people. Same thing. That's a possibility. Another possibility is that seven is the number of Shabbos. 
It's the number of Shemitah. What it represents is the serenity that comes with faith. It's counterintuitive for me to stop working once a week. If I work for six days, I make X amount. If I work for seven days, I'm going to make more. Shemitah takes it to a whole new level. It's counterintuitive that I'm going to work for six years, but take the seventh year. If I make this much working six years, should it not be that much more if I work a seventh year? And the answer is that intuitively, yes. But Amuna doesn't work that way. Amuna says that God is a plan. God can make you work six days and make this. And if even if you work the extra day, you still make that. And the same thing with Shemitah. What is God trying to tell the Jewish people? God's trying to tell the Jewish people, I get it. You want to win the war. I get it. You want to free yourselves from the pollution. I get it that you want to lead the revolution. But who is really the one that's supporting all of you? It's the Almighty. It is the Ribono Shalom himself that provides us with that protection. That's a second possible answer for why seven days. Rav Bazak points out that when given the command, he could not have known how hard it would actually be. In theory, waiting seven days when you're told that, it's not a big deal. Until you're in the car with your family. Imagine, right? You're ready to pull out. Everybody's in the car, but you're told you have to wait 20 minutes. Why? Because you have to wait 20 minutes. Kids are, why are we not leaving? Got to wait. Got to wait. Now imagine if the place you're going to is really special. It's amazing. Then there's more anticipation. The kids are nagging more. Here, the Jewish people are terrified. What is going to happen next? Are we going to be attacked? The Plishtim are inching closer and closer and closer. Our very life is in danger. They anticipate a tremendous bloodbath. And as such, the Jewish people are, are terrified. In theory, waiting seven days is not so hard. In practice, it is going to prove to be much harder. Rav Yigal Ariel has an amazing idea, an amazing piece, which I think he piggybacks on so much of what we've already said. But Rav Yigal says the message that's being told here is he can wait for some things, but not for all. Does Shal attack the, the, the Plishtim? He does not. Why? Because he's scared. He's terrified what is going to come. What is going to be? He's paralyzed. So that you can wait. But you can't wait for Shmuel. You can't wait the extra moments for Shmuel to come and tell you, okay, the seven days are up. Let's move forward. And I think that that's a very, very, very important piece to understand. So Vayomer Shaul, Shaul sees the people leaving and he says, He says, bring me the Ola and the Shlamim. And he brings the Ola. Do you see how close he was? He only had time to bring the Korban Ola. Meaning it's moments later. If he had waited, imagine what could have been. Vayomer Shmuel, Shmuel says to him, what did you do? Now in two prakim in Perek Tetvav, when Amalek is defeated and the Jewish people are told, this is what how you need to win the war, this is what you need to do, and he doesn't. Uh, the, the Jewish people and Shaul do not follow God's command. 
his words, Shmuel's re- reproach to the Jewish people is, kol We'll see, it's a, it's a beautiful and very powerful message that he's saying to them based on what it sounds like. He's bleeding like a sheep. But here he's using the same word, Sita, what did you do? That's all he says then. What did you do? Vayomer Shaul, Shaul says, I saw that the people were running away. Number one, the people were losing patience. And you didn't come, you were late. And the plishtim were gathering at Michmas. And I said, See what happened? I said the Plishim are going to come to Gilgal and we have not been, we have not given the carbon to God. We have not appeased God. Rashi says, I held back. He makes himself out to be the hero. He says, I overcame my desire to wait. And I brought the carbon because I thought that the moment would be lost. He's basically saying, it's not my fault. It's the people. They were leaving. It's you. You were late. We need a carbon or we can't win. It sounds pretty terrible. The idea that we need a carbon or we can't win, doesn't that sound a little bit like the Aron? If we have the Aron, we'll win the war. If we bring the carbon, is it voodoo? Is it magic? If you do this, it will work. If you don't, you won't. Vayomer Shmuel el Shaul. Shmuel says to Shaul, Niskalta. You messed up. You really, really, really messed up. The Tzudah Tzion says, what does Niskalta mean? L'shon sichlut v'tipshut. You're an idiot. You didn't keep what God wanted. God was planning and giving you the malucha forever, and you're going to lose it. What's Shmuel's answer? You lose. Game over. It's done. The Ralbag says, What do you mean you're going to be king forever? The Torah tells us that David's going to be the king. Is David going to be the king? It's shall be the king. Adolam. He says, listen, let's understand. Adolam is not Adolam. Chana says that uh, what's going to happen? Shmuel will be there Adolam forever. He's there for 50 years. We're told that a slave is there. If he doesn't want to go free, next to his parsha, he puts his door, his ear to the door, and they, they take an awl and make a hole in his ear. He's Avadol Olam. What's the Olam? Leovel until 50 years. It's possible that Shaul could have recovered, but he would have had to own it that it was his mistake. He doesn't do that. Now, it's interesting that there are similar themes here to the golden calf in the desert. What happens? The timing. They don't mess up on day two, and it's like there's so much time ahead of them. But they mess up and Moshe comes down just moments later. If they had only been patient a little bit longer, could have been okay. It's not the same thing. As soon as, <coughs> as soon as Shmuel 
As soon as Shaul brings the carbon, Shmuel shows up. Why can't be there two minutes earlier? They bring a carbon that they shouldn't have brought. Rabbi Zach says the connection is that carbonate only matter because we're doing what God wants. It only works if we're doing a carbon because God wants it, not if we do it in our terms. And this is actually worse because God doesn't even ask for the carbon. The Nevi'im, we're going to see, God willing, when we get to Malachim, the Nevi'im will go out and over and over again and say, can you, why are you bringing these korbanot? But there, the korbanot are brought because God God wants the korbanot. God's anger is not that they're bringing korbanot. It's that you're bringing the korbanot without a pure heart. This is even worse, says Rebbe They're not even supposed to bring it. And yet they do. God wants someone whose heart it's in the right place, not you. God made you the 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 prince. Alamo. But you're you're gonna lose it because you didn't keep the word of God. Shmuel goes home, he leaves. It's a terrible feeling for Shmuel, for Shaul. Shaul is all left. He gets the feeling that God is no longer with him. He has the feeling that Shmuel is not with him. And he's all by himself. Now let's see what happens. He counts his army. And instead of having 3,000, he's down to... He's down to 600. Can God win with 600? He won with 300 with Gidon. Now there's... They are in Geva Binyamin. Right there. They've moved from Gilgal to Geva bin Yamin. And the, the uh, enemy is in Michmas. The plunderers, says Rav Bazak, or the Mitsudos, and others say Mashchit, these are amazingly powerful warriors. They come out in three branches. One is going out towards Ofra. Up north to Ofra and Eretz And the other one is going to Beit Choron, to the left. And the other one is going out towards the desert. That is what's going on. They're all going out and they are going to win. Pretty, it's a pretty horrible situation to find himself in. Now, if you think back to the war against Yavesh Gilad, it was the it was Shaul who divides up into multi prongs. Three, he's the one on the offensive. Here, he's frozen. He doesn't know what to do. He's stuck. And so it seems like the Jewish people are lost, except that Hashem never leaves Am Yisrael, and the Yeshua will come. The salvation will come through Yonatan. You cannot find a single smith in all of Israel. The Plishim were nervous. They said, I know what's going to happen. You guys are going to make for yourselves weapons. And yet, and you'll make swords and, and, uh, and, and spears. By Eredu call Yisrael a Plishtim. The Jews would go to the Plishtim, will tosh eat it, ishet machrashto, bete to, be kardumo, be macharishato. What happened, by the way, 
the Plishtim were known to be expert smiths. It's possible in Parsha B'Shalach that that's Hashem was afraid that they'd come to the Plishtim and there would be battle there. The Plishtim were master metal workers. So what did the Jews do? You needed to fix your plow or any of your other tools that you used for farming. What, what would you do? You had to go to the Plishtim. They were the ones that were that, that were the metal smiths. It's a great puzzle because we have a word here, pim. Nobody knew what the word pim means. Only time in Tanakh. So the process of sharpening the tools, what is a pim? So Rashi says, pim is in the word peh, it's a to sharpen. They thought it was some sort of tool or some sort of stone you would rub against your tools in order to sharpen them. Radak and others say the same thing as well. And so that's the thought, that what it means. Rav Yitzhak at Shalom. I had the chance to hear him give this uh, give this sheer live. And that Mikra as well say the, say the following. Pim is actually a coin. It's a coin. They found it. How do we know a pim is a coin? Because if you look on the right of the screen, that is a picture of a pim. And it says on it in ancient Hebrew, pim. It's a weight. If you wanted to pay for your sharpening of your tools, it costs a pim. Pim is a valuable coin. That's what they had to pay. It's amazing that archaeology... Is uh, is a tool that Rashi didn't necessarily have. Rashi didn't know what a pim was. The other Mefarshim didn't know what a pim was. So they guessed it must be some sort of tool that would sharpen it. Context in the pasuk based on other p a mouth. It makes it all makes sense. And yet someone did some uh, some research and found a pim and said, "Oh, that's pshat in Shmuel Aleph Yud Gimel pasuk Chaf Gimel Chaf uh, Aleph." There was not a single sword except for in the hands of Shaul and Yonatan. But he might say Shaul Yonatan Beno, they have one. And so what happens? The last Pasuk of our Perak, this is where we're up to. The Plishtim come. And they take over an area called Mavar Michmas. It's the only road to Gilgal. By doing this, essentially the Plishtim are taking over the roads and they're taking over the battle. It is no longer a battle that the Jews can win on their own. They are going to need some incredible miracle to save them. Mir Tzashem, when we come back to Paragud Dalid next time, we'll see what happens to save the Jewish people. Sadly, Shaul's fate has already been sealed. He has lost the Malucha. But there is still the opportunity to win the war. Thank you so much for joining us again. Have a wonderful week and keep walking in the ways of the prophets.